One Emotional Podcast, conversations for inspiration on the go. We offer on-the-go inspiration because our whole heart is set on beauty and our best bets are set on art. Hi, Mitra. How are you? It's wonderful to have you here in Luan Podcast. Hi, it's great to be back and looking forward to our conversation. Yes, I want to introduce this amazing woman that I have in front of me. Her name is Mitra Manesh. She's the founder of InnerMap. This is an innovative new mindfulness app and the host of Lights On. It's a podcast offering support for a mindful life. She is a mindfulness thought leader, storyteller, and educator with over 3.5 decades of experience, helping people of all ages and many different cultures to live, love, and lead more consciously at home and at work. Her work is a blend of Western corporate training and Eastern-based practices. The result is a unique approach offering knowledge and wisdom in a practical and empowering way. Her clients range from everyday people seeking peace at home and work to celebrities seeking balance and to institutional and other entities such as UCLA, Mindfulness Awareness Research Center, Amazon, Mary Lynch, Unilever, UCLA, Hugo Boss, Thomas Cook, the Senate of Canada, just to name a few. Beyond mindfulness and corporate work, she is a human rights commissioner in Ontario, Canada and an executive for numerous nonprofit and for-profit entities around the world. And Mitra, I cannot you know, wait to ask, with all the knowledge that you have, with all the experience that you have, I would love to ask you why some people are suffering or suffering more in these times. What is happening around the world and what is happening with humans? Hmm. So what I see, and, and now, as I told you before our um, formal conversation, that uh, it's an, uh, there's been amazing contact and connection with people around the world since the pandemic. Uh, what happened, what pandemic brought us was really the truth of the fact that nothing is permanent. We had this illusion of the fact that some things are permanent and we have them forever. And we saw that the pandemic showed us that that's not true. Uh, organizations collapsed, families collapsed, normals collapsed. And those who were really believing that things need to stay the same or believe that they are the same all the time, those are the ones that are really suffering the most. It's the same pain. All the losses that I'm not by no means disrespecting or not honoring the losses we had because we've had many in a global sense. I personally had like a lot of losses, people that I knew personally and lost them to COVID. However, the question, a larger question is, do we really know what life is all about? And if we think life is a permanent thing, and then we'll be really disappointed with life. Mm -hmm. But if you really em embrace and understand that life is about change, life is always changing. Right now, you and I started a few minutes ago, biologically, psychologically, spiritually, you and I... Yes. <laughs> Sorry, there, there was some noise. We both have changed. Mm. The bodies have changed what our conversation will bring to us and hopefully to people that are listening, they change. So 
if we are in the midst of an energy of change in life, wanting to be like completely solid and not changing, then there will be a lot of suffering. That's a very philosophical general answer to your question, but I'm sure we'll go deeper. Did that go home for you? Yes, also, but the only thing constant that we have in our everyday life is change, right? It's something that we even have, you know, the change of the seasons, we have, you know, life and death, right? We, we have kind of like this physical and biological uh, rebirths constantly in our lives. But why is change so difficult for many people? Why many people have resistance to that change if it's something so natural and so unique to our existence? I do agree with you that that is what life is all about. Life is showing us that I'm about change day and night and like, you know, this and that. Um, I think people who have this um, element of control and do not live in the present moment, which really I'm talking as if like there are those people and these people, we all do that. But the question is to what degree? When you live in the past and future, which means that you want to either go and change the past or somehow uh, control the future, then you will be suffering. But when you live in the present moment, when you understand ah, the most important part of the conversation, that you do have a choice. You see, in this survival mode that many of us live in, in that state, we really believe we don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I when I counsel people or when I'm teaching my classes or when I'm speaking and people say, but 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 Mitra, you don't understand our condition and they want to really represent their pain. And I'm saying, I do hear you, I do honor your pain, but I'm also saying you do have a choice. There's a comma after our pain story. The comma is I have a choice and I can handle it. I find a way. What's the way? I don't know right now because I'm in the midst of the pain, but I do trust that there is a way and I am capable of finding the way. So it's really about choice and choice happens in the present moment in short. Totally. And about taking, it's kind of like taking responsibility, right? For our choices, because sometimes we tend to think that just life happens to us, right? And sometimes it does, but it's how we react and what we do with that, you know, where we, where actually responsibility comes in. And when we understand how responsible we are for our happiness, how responsible we are for what's happening outside in our lives, eventually I think that's kind of like one of these aha moments that helps us start this kind of like personal work journey. Right. Instead of life happening, life is happening to me. It's like I am part of making what life is, you know, being made of. Yes, absolutely. And life is happening, of course. Like pandemic happened, mm -hmm. but but the question is, I, I always talk about this dance that we have. So there's a dance happening. You and I are dancing in this conversation, right? We're dancing with life. The question is, to what music are we dancing? So pandemic happened, same for everybody. Different conditions, same pain. The question was really right from the beginning up until now that hopefully we're at the end of it. The question was, what is my choice and what's the music that I'm choosing to dance with and dance to when it comes to the pandemic? Um, many people saw it as a doomsday and, and that was fine. Many people saw it as like, oh, this is a great thing. 
many side as a in a very balanced way of course there's a element of pain to it mm -hmm. and we acknowledge that and honor that and grieve that and then there's also element of opportunity when mm -hmm. my old home is completely gone and demolished now i have a new choice to build a new home yeah. all the things that i was attached to well they're all gone and at now I can rebuild it, but am I rebuilding it with a sense of knowing and empowerment or am I building it thinking, oh, I just need to pick up the pieces and then somehow, you know, do something with it. Yeah. So what I'm emphasizing here is really the, the importance of choice mm -hmm. and knowing that how I manage myself and how I dance with what music I dance to the events of life mm -hmm. is what determines whether I stay in suffering or do I move into growth and change this mm -hmm. um, unusual times mm -hmm. into an opportunity for change, which I think you and I were chatting about it, which has been, has it been difficult? Absolutely. Um, has it been amazingly full of opportunities? Absolutely. The question is, which one do you want to pay more attention to? You know? Yeah, which one do you want to bring it more to life, right? Exactly. And I, I completely agree with you. And I would like to focus on the in-between of those moments, because I think sometimes that's where the pain or the fear sometimes resides. So, for example, if, if you were talking, you know, metaphorically about your past house, right? And then you're having your new house or your, it could be your past self as an example. There's a moment, maybe you're here with your past self. You, you're not that past self anymore. You've decided to change. You're making that choice. You're being responsible, but you're not yet your new person. And this in between, when you are kind of like in no man's land, when you are kind of like, oh, you don't know who you are. You don't know uh, many things because you're in that transition. That's a moment where a lot of pain happens. How can we transit those moments of pain between changes? Great question. So what's happening in, in that between the old home and the new home, as you said it, uh, we are really thinking that once we arrive to the new home, we'll be fine and all will be as well. And when we promise ourselves that, then we can't wait to get there. What we need to remember is also these moments in between places are waiting. And I, I, I call it in the making moments, right? Because it's like, okay, let's go with the metaphoric uh, aspect of, of the home. So home, the foundation is poured. Now they're building the rooms. Now they're putting the windows in. When we always chase a destination in life, and we do that because we've been trained that way, that brings a lot of suffering. If you look at our life journey, for instance, we were born and said, oh, if you go to school, I remember I was the youngest, I couldn't wait to go to school. I thought school was the it. And school was amazing. But then I thought, oh, graduate. I want to graduate from school. Then you wanted to go to college. They wanted to find your partner. They wanted to form family. And I'm thinking if we really go with that idea, then the ultimate thing is death. So we're chasing death. It's, it makes no sense for us to let go of these 
amazing moments. Nobody taught us that it's amazing when you're in high school. It's beautiful when you're in kindergarten. Well, the moments between like being on your own out of your family life and getting into your next family life. Well, those are amazing times. That's when you make memories, you get to know yourself, you go in and out of relationships and you really know what you want. Nobody put value on, on that process. Mm-hmm. I always give the example of, I live in Los Angeles right now. So if you saw me at the airport and you say, Misha, where are you going? I say, well, I'm going to, you know, South America. And you say, so, oh, what, what's going to happen? I say, oh, I'm going to go and travel and find people. He said, then what happens? I said, well, then I come back home. You say, oh, so why are you going? You're going to come back home. And I think, that's true. Why am I spending two weeks of my time, all the money and, and all the potential unknowns to... Because that's where the value and the meaning lives. So I never stop traveling because I'm going to always get back home. It's the same thing in life. I'm not going to ever do that because eventually I know what's going to happen. It is those in-between moments, those encounters, those unknowns that brings the excitement of, of traveling. You told me you want to travel to Middle East or Africa. Okay, you're going there. If you knew exactly what would happen and it would be exactly like home, then why would you bother to go? Let's invite those unknowns, which is really about our relationship with knowns and unknowns, that we've been told that it's great to just control what's going to happen. And I'm thinking, no, if I can control it, I don't want it. Because then I plan for it. I'm not taking away the planning, of course, like the traveling example. I'm going to travel and and make sure I'm safe and I have the hotel arrangement and I have converted my money and all of those things. But I also want the element of excitement and unknowns, letting go of my attachment and obsession with known and familiar and control and, and things that I want it to be this way. It won't be exciting if I knew exactly what will happen. So really, the short answer, tune in to the opportunities in that between. It is there. It is in that pause. It is in that waiting room of life that all those interesting things happen when you're open to it. Of course. If not, it will be completely boring, right? And And, uh, stressful. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and we discover many things about ourselves when we are, you know, in adventures, when you're in the unknown, right? It's kind of like sometimes, you know, you discover things about you that you didn't know there, they, there existed. And that's because, you know, you went into that adventure, you said yes to new things, you kind of like jumped into it because obviously, you know, jumping into the free fall, it's, it's, it's a fear of the unknown. It's about not knowing what is going to happen. And sometimes fear tends to paralyze us, right? Yes. Yes. What about those, how can we start to overcome or have a better dance with fear in our lives? Because yeah. imagine the amount of projects of businesses, of relationships that maybe would have been done if we humans didn't have that much fear. Start small, mm-hmm. very small, because usually we seem to jump in where it's too big to handle. And I say, 
Start very, very small. What is your fear? My fear is of unknown uh, or meeting new people. That's why there's so much social anxiety. It's the same thing. What if I meet uh, your friend and I don't know what to say? Well, I think of something. I'll, I'll stay in silence. It's okay. I ask a question instead. So start very small. Look at your fear and name your fear in a very general sense. So if my fear, I think, is meeting new people or experiencing new things, really my fear is about uh, control and not knowing. My fear is about unknown. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to start little things, little unknown things, very, very small, very small. I'm going to go to a restaurant that I've never been to. I'm going to take a road and drive on it that I've never been on and see what happens and allow that sense of excitement reach you because we've never experienced it. We never know what it is. It's like if I've never eaten this food, it doesn't matter how you explain it and define it for me. I'm thinking, okay, I don't know what that means until I put it in my mouth and say, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I've never tasted that before. So introduce little small changes or whatever your fear might be. Say it's of, uh, they say the most, um, feared activity uh, or lack thereof after death is public speaking (laughs) and um, when i groom my clients to do public speaking i tell them start speaking like in a meeting that you don't usually speak they said well what that's got to do with public speaking i said well start small start small because you know there's always people in in like team meetings one person never speaks and i just say unmute yourself and say something and say, I, I agree with you, or I disagree with you. I, I've experienced that. Start speaking very small, and then make your way up to standing there and speaking in public in front of many, many people. Or start um, practicing very small at home, just like as if you're speaking to, to an audience. So really understanding and identifying, naming your fear, and taking very small baby steps, kind, compassionate baby steps toward doing it. Because where we get lost is when we start becoming critical and judgmental about ourselves. And people use very unkind words about themselves. Like, I'm stupid, I'm not able. And and, and they talk about themselves as if they're a fridge and they can never be in an oven. I don't speak very well. I can't do this. I said, well, no. You haven't done it. I understand. But doesn't mean that, I mean, you weren't a parent before you weren't a parent. So you can't say, well, I've never been a parent. You never did this amazing project before you did this project. So there's always a beginning Mm -hmm. and there's always a comma that I can do it. Really believing that how you are unfolding as a beautiful being, adding to your abilities and, and desires and passions as you walk the streets of life. Totally. I remember this yoga instructor, um, his name is Jorge, and he used to tell us something that I found really wise. He said, like, most students come over here and they're like, I've been doing one year of yoga and I cannot touch my toes. You know, what's going on? You know, and like really frustrated. And he would turn around and tell them, like, he's like, you, you were just were born. You're one year old in yoga. 
you're just kind of like, you're still a baby. You start, you know, kind of like learning to walk. So be patient with yourself. And even though, I don't know, he has been, you know, 40 years, you know, teaching yoga. And he was like, I've been 40 years. I'm still discovering what yoga is and what my life is. So if you start seeing like, something that you started uh, metaphorically and compare it with, you know, the age of your life doing that thing, you would treat yourself more kind because you would be like, okay, yes, I'm, I'm a baby or I'm a toddler or I'm, or I'm a child. I may be five years old, even though I've been doing this for five years or, or anything else. Um, you're still a child and you're still kind of like navigating and understanding and trying to figure things out. And we tend to be like, oh my God, I've been five years on this and I can't believe that I'm not doing this, 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 this and that. And that inner critic and that judgment comes in. And there's, I think, the biggest killer of dreams, the biggest killer of art, the biggest killer of creativity is your inner critic. It destroys everything that goes through it, right? I agree with you completely. And, and let's acknowledge Jorge for that beautiful, wise statement, because that's true. We are always, even if we weren't just one year into a practice, we're always rebirthing ourselves because every day we're renewed, every moment, every breath we're renewed and a new person is showing up. And knowing that we're work in progress. I mean, I've been practicing this for 40 years mm. and, and still there are moments that, oh, moments, many, many moments that I find myself, oh, oh, that's where I'm at. I just finished a... Uh, uh, teaching a course at UCLA on overthinking, how we overthink. And and somebody asked me after the class that, you know, so you don't overthink ever? I'm thinking, when did I say that? Uh, and he said, well, I just assumed. I said, that's not true. It's not that you don't do it anymore. It's just you do it less often and you wake up from it because we're in a, you know, illusionary state. Wake up from it faster. That's all it is. We're never teaching not to fall because, I mean, if we're alive, we're going to fall. But we're also practicing that when I fall, I realize, oh, oh, I have a choice. Oh, I fell, you know, noticing and remembering our choice and then practicing how to get up. That's all we're doing. That's mm -hmm. all we're doing, no matter where we're practicing, whether it's music and art or, or mindfulness and yoga wherever it is, or being a parent, mm -hmm. or being a lover, or being a sibling. We are always in practice. You know, I, I see these uh, carts in the supermarkets that they have a little one. I don't know if you've seen it. It says in training for little kids, they're doing it. And I'm thinking, I need that sign for everything. I need to hang it on my neck. I'm in training. I've been in training all my life about different things. We are always in training so we need to be compassionate about that that they're just like we're learning so many things mm -hmm. so often mm -hmm. that only with compassion only with presence only with recognition of our choice we can go further otherwise we can just just like stay in one point and just go at ourselves in a brutal way and sometimes we do
Totally. It's kind of like having that student uh, mindset instead of the teacher mindset, right? The teacher is kind of like, okay, I already know it. I can teach everybody and there's nothing else that I could learn. No, as an example. And uh, the student is all the time kind of like thirsty for knowledge, thirsty for getting to know more. And what you were just saying, it reminds me a lot of the quote from Richard Branson, the one that he says about that, you know, all babies fall down when they're starting to walk. Right. He's never seen a baby that stops not wanting to walk because he has fallen down, he or she has fallen down. And most of the time with, with us, you know, in adulthood, sometimes we can have a failure, sometimes we can have a setback. And then we're like, no, yeah, I fell one time. I'm not going to do that again. And it just kind of like we give so much importance to that. And you watch little kids, they fall constantly. And that's how we all learn to walk. We all of us fell down so many times when we were learning and we still had the courage to continue walking. And sometimes in life, it's just one fall and yeah, that's it. <laughs> yes. That's a beautiful example and story of babies, you know, trying to uh, walk because they don't have a point of reference for failure. Mm -hmm. We have made points of reference and that's why I said presence is important. Uh, I talk about past being only good for one thing and that is for learning. Mm -hmm. We go back to the past. Of course, we don't want to delete it and we don't want to um, pretend it didn't happen, but we don't want to really focus on our failures. We want to go there, I call it with a visitor's visa, mm -hmm. and, and not stay there. And we go there asking, what was my learning? What are the notes that I want to put on this? And what are the things that I really want to do? And I think this presence, this, this idea of being in present moment that allows us to understand that no matter where we are, even when we can't change things, including past, we can benefit from it and we can show up in a different way is the idea that will eventually save us and take us to a different realm of consciousness mm -hmm. because you can see and well i can see that people are now standing at the fork mm. we are really all collectively standing at the fork and we need to decide either go deeper into our suffering mm. or go deeper into our choice and the choice is ours mm -hmm. and if you're choosing that you can see that there's always you know negative information there's always exaggeration and dramatization of the news and we can go that way sure or we can go enough there to get what serves us and get out as soon as possible and come back to our choice land and to our present moment mm -hmm. choice is ours i mean everything you say is true for you everything i say is true for me the question is what do i want to pay more attention to and put it in the frame of my i call it living room and consciousness mm -hmm. that's that's what we do when we put a picture there if i put the bad news there i'm saying this is what i give importance to mm -hmm. if you put your choice there you say this is what i want to give more attention to and prominence and, and importance to mm -hmm. all our choice it's always been that right. that way but it's more so now Totally. One of the definitions of uh, suffering that I like, the other, because I think it's pretty simple and easy to explain, is that sometimes suffering, suffering comes when we have, um, when, when there's a difference between our expectation and our realities, right? When we want something, for example, that we don't have, no? For example, or we imagine that our lives should be something different, you know? This expectation and our reality is completely different. 
What can you say about that? Because some people have said, not like many questions that we have over in Luan is like, okay, so then it means that I need to not have expectations and I need to have a different reality. And then some other people say like, okay, so then how do you change your reality? And there's kind of like a lot of, a lot of debate between, you know, how to make this difference between expectation and reality less. Yes. Uh, expectation is a very interesting word. So we, when we plan and be expected, that means we're giving no opportunity to it happen any different way, right? I say, I expect you to show up at this time. And if you come two minutes late, I just be very disappointed, right? It would ruin my day. So in the world of a deeper energetic world, the idea is that we show enough passion, enough desire, enough uh, energy in life that we want and have preferences and, and passionate and desired uh, outcomes. But once we clarify that, once I identify that, then it's the moment of letting go of that, which mm. is very oxymoronic about what other worlds say. They say, no, go for it, go for it. But then we get to a place of efforting I call it efforting, such a word doesn't exist probably, but it's like when I just can't let go of, I become obsessed, obsessed with it. And that's where our suffering starts. So the question is this, this is the happy medium that I have found that works, that it's a combination of the West and the East, that you have enough clarity, enough presence to know what you want mm -hmm. and really Imagine yourself, use your imagination to see yourself doing and more importantly, feeling it when that arrives, mm. but also be fluid enough and be flexible enough for something even better to mm. happen. Because when we want something, we want it with our mind. Mm -hmm. What is available to us is far more than that. There's a beautiful story that I recall uh, that this woman had a, it's a metaphorical story, that this woman had a really great um, relationship with God mm -hmm. and asked God to promise that whenever she wants love in her life, that God will help her to have that love. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, years go by and she meets this person, let's call him Adam, mm -hmm. and and they have a great time they, they really love each other they enjoy each other company but something happens and adam decides to leave so adam leaves the relationship and this woman goes to god and says you know i i want adam i want adam and first it starts by praying and then she, it, she starts being angry and at the end she just is really angry with god and says you promised me you promised me to give me love but i see that you are like all the other human beings you are breaking your promise and god patiently says my dear what did i promise you and she says, you promised me, uh, you promised me love. And God says, exactly. And I'm staying with my promise. Adam is not love. Mm. I'm going to bring you love if you want it. But Adam is not love. So her limitation was that love that she's seeking only exists in Adam. And life was offering her something far more than Adam. 
-hmm. probably far more compassion, understanding, connection, but she was focused on Adam. And in a way we do that when we become obsessed and expect, the word you use, and expect Adams in our life. And here they are, far more Adam, waiting for us to connect and interact, but we are focused on Adams of our life. My invitation is to really get clear about what you want. Really feel and imagine and visualize that, what that feels like. And time to let it go and allow the fluidity of, of your energy to bring that to you when and if it's the right thing. Mm -hmm, totally. And you mentioned something very interesting about feeling it, feeling it what you, what you already want, what you want. It's a kind of like feeling already having it, right? Because sometimes when we want something, it's kind of like sometimes we come from a place of uh, lack, kind of like, no, I want that because I don't have it. Yes. And that, that place of lack eventually, obviously, it's not going to bring anything because then we tend to grasp it. We tend not to obsess, but kind of like, you know, close the vision on that specific thing. Like your example of just looking at Adam and not looking about all the other multi-potential opportunities that are around Adam, right? <laughs> there are plenty and they're infinite, but we tend to kind of like, you know, close it down to Adams around the world. Yes. Absolutely. And you said something very interesting. You said, um, we may, we will not get it. I'm saying we may get it, but not get the experience that we wanted, because mm -hmm. this is a very interesting, delicate point. We want what we want. We chase what we chase, because really the ultimate outcome is a state of feeling that we're, we're really wanting. So I say, if I have this car, I feel, young people say, I feel so hot. If I, if I drive this, okay, if I wear this clothes, if I go to this place and we may have the experience, but we may not feel the feeling we were chasing. It is that feeling that we were wanting. I want to be there because I want to feel good. So I may end up going there, but not feeling good about it. So the example is, of, of a person that has a lot of financial resources, mm -hmm. right? But doesn't feel rich. Mm -hmm. So they have what they wanted, but they maybe sacrifice the feeling that they were really wanting, which is the ultimate prize of yeah. everything we seek and everything we desire. Mm -hmm. I want this because I want to experience that, right? Even, even in service. I want to do this interview because I think I can help people. It doesn't even need to be something selfish, but I want to be of service, right? I want to share my teachings, correct? Yeah. But if I'm too attached to that, I will get the class, I will get the interview, but I won't serve people mm -hmm. because I'm too attached to that. And I'm too obsessed with how it should be. Mm -hmm. But when I flow, with the moment. When I go, I always um, close my eyes before any any public event, be it a teaching or speaking. I just came back from a conference. And, and, and I, if I don't have a place, I go to the bathroom and sit there and I say, may I say what you want me to say? May I do what you want me to do? And may I be of service to everybody? Mm -hmm. And by you, I mean universe. I don't have any particular name for it. Yeah. Universal mm -hmm. consciousness. Mm -hmm. 
and and it's amazing how that changes everything all of the sudden that that we're talking about public speaking that rushed sense of i should do this and i should do this and sometimes i go and honestly all those things that are prepared they don't even come up mm-hmm. but i do serve people i attend to their needs at hand mm-hmm. and but when i go with my ego i just give them a bunch of words a blah, 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 and i come out and i feel like oh i didn't it didn't feel satisfying yeah it's kind of like it wasn't coming out out of service right exactly exactly and just pinpointing a little bit what you said about you know a rich person huh i read a quote about the rich person is not the one that has more but the one that needs less absolutely and i love that because we're constantly focusing on kind of like these achievements now what else can you get what else can you do where else can you you know thrive and strive and have you know this um kind of like knowledge of yourself we're constantly not seeking through that achievement and sometimes it's like what about needing less what about just you know focusing in like really easy things such as your breathing such as your presence that you we have it there every second of our lives and we're constantly chasing all of these huge things outside of our lives where we have sometimes what's most important right in front of our nose yes exactly what a, what a great point exactly and and really uh, finding and discovering the amazing words that exist in small things mm-hmm. also. And I'm by no means, believe me, I, I, I'm in Beverly Hills, California, so by no means I'm saying don't be successful and don't do these things. But what I'm saying is there's also value in so many other things that we seem to ignore in mm-hmm. these moments, as you said, in, in nature, in connection with each other, in just yeah beauty of all these things that are available to us. I remember every time I was sort of in a suffering mode and I would talk to one of my teachers, uh, he was a, a senior Buddhist monk and he used to ask me, oh, I was always thinking like, what do I need to get? And he was saying, what do you need to let go? And I'm thinking, no, I need more things, not less things. And he would say, uh, let's try less things and see what do you need to let go? And, and that question was always, always puzzling to me until I actually started exercising it. Mm. And I realized, oh my God, it's my suffering is because my basket is too full. Mm-hmm. It's not because it's empty, because I'm not seeing the fullness of my life, of the connections, of the beautiful interconnections that I have with people, with nature, with things. And I'm not valuing that. And I say, no, 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 I want one, I want more. And that sense of like, how do I in really connect with things that I have in a different way? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it comes in the moment of um, gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. When I say, you know, find something, I usually tell my students find something first thing in the morning especially because the rational mind is waking up and it wants to tell you what's wrong with your world (laughs) just before that happens you wake up and you think oh what can i be grateful for what is right in my world Hmm. and and they always look for something big and say well nothing important is happening today i say well do you have a pillow they say yeah i said well start there what a wonderful pillow i just 
you know, move my head on my pillow. I said, Whoa, I have such a nice pillow and my sheets. Whoa, I love the feel of my sheets. Oh, I'm breathing. I suppose at my age, I'm very, very grateful for that. So, oh, my hands. Oh, oh, it, they're moving. Look at this. I mean, look at this magic. Billions, trillions of cells need to work in absolute harmony for me to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, isn't that a magical thing to pay attention to and acknowledge and be grateful for? Of course. It's kind of like turning the ordinary into the extraordinary, right? Absolutely. Purpose of mindfulness. Yes. Purpose of mindfulness. Thich Nhat Hanh passed away recently mm -hmm. and his famous, famous experience, not just now, 40 years ago was, can you enjoy and be present when you're washing your dishes mm. and people in the western world said what are you talking about what you washing your dishes the worst activity of the day and his suggestion was get present to it feel the warmth of water on your hands feel the touch of your hmm, that's interesting the things your battery what? yeah but but my battery is on so Anyways, let me see if I can handle this technology. So he said, can you just see if, if, you can, if you can look at it in a different way and experience it in a different way? Mm -hmm. And that was his suggestion, washing dishes. Most of us dread that. Mm -hmm. And many of us can experience that in a different way. So, mm -hmm. Of course. Right. Let me see. I'm going to go to my other uh, videos so that yeah. I can see you and you can see me. Let's see. There we All go. Right. I can see. Here we go. I just need to move this a little bit. Okay. Amazing. And Mitra, I want to ask you, um, could you share with us a little bit about your journey with dyslexia? Because it has been a special gift and a challenge. And um, I think it also at some point could have been like this point of a lot of suffering, right? Yes. Can you tell us how was your journey with, with, with that? Yes. You see the good thing and maybe not so good thing about dyslexia um, for me was that nobody really had recognized that at that time. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a thing. I'm sure scientists knew about it, but like average people like me and my family didn't know. And I didn't realize that there was something called dyslexia. What I did realize was that I wouldn't understand things the way everybody else understood, especially when I went to school. I was fine understanding and interpreting things on my own, but God forbid if, if the teacher gave instructions. Oh my God, I would be begging my friends, well, well, what are we doing? What are we doing? I would be completely lost because I couldn't follow instructions. Was there suffering? It was. But there was also this amazing gift of me not counting on things the way they were presented. Mm -hmm. I mean, you become so creative. I didn't even know I was being that, to be honest with you. It's not like I sat there and, and said, let me be creative about this. I just realized I don't understand what they're saying. I really didn't understand what my teacher was saying. Then, I mean, let me age myself. I'm 64 years old. Imagine almost 50 something years ago, I started taking notes, which I remember my teachers would object to. And they said, what are you doing? I said, like, I'm just writing what you just said. And they would come and check and we say, okay, that was fine. And 
I would make sense of, and my notes were very different than what they were saying. Mm -hmm. So what it did was this, I started not relying on the outside world to mm -hmm. let me understand things or help me understand things. And that's a beautiful, independent, emotionally independent kind of experience mm -hmm. that I realized I can only count on me. Mm -hmm. I can only count on me and what I do with, with the information. Mm -hmm. I was also lucky that I was the youngest of the family and my family was very academic. So there was this expectation to do well. And I didn't know any other way. Everybody did well. My mother was a teacher. My brother was very good. My sister was very good at school. So I thought I had to be good. So I found ways to be as good as I could be. Mm. And then what is funny is this so-called curse and disability, as they call it. I call it diverse ability because mm. we all have diverse abilities. Mm -hmm. This diverse ability is the reason that I became a better teacher because if I can understand it in a simple way, believe me, anybody in the room will understand it. So there was suffering. It was hidden suffering. Mm -hmm. But there was also the opportunity. Again, are you paying attention to the problem or are you paying attention to the solution? And I think in my naivete as a child, I had to pay attention to the solution mm -hmm. because I just had to show up. Mm -hmm. Let me take a moment and send some loving kindness. I always do. When an ambulance goes by, may they be safe. May they be healthy. Sorry, go ahead. And did you ever um, kind of like felt a dump? Because I think with dyslexia, as with other diverse abilities, as you call them, that I love that term, um, we tend to kind of like to label ourselves. And I think that's, that's really dangerous because when we're young, we tend to kind of like identify our place in the world and identify or put certain characteristics to our identity, right? Because we're exploring who we are. We're exploring our place in the family and we're exploring our, our place in our classroom. And we're, we're exploring a lot, you know, like who we are and our sense of identity. Yes. And sometimes with, uh, with dyslexia or with anxiety disorders or with any other kind of, you know, disorders or with dysfunctional families or, you know, the list is, you know, ongoing a lot of this exactly all of that we tend to label ourselves and label ourselves as dumb or label ourselves as bad or label ourselves as you know not talented enough or whatever did, did you experience that i did i did i knew that there was something not like everybody else mm -hmm. but there was also something deeper that that really helped me it's funny i i, I keep going to the solution but I did feel, I realized that everybody gets it and I don't get it. Mm -hmm. I realized that um, everybody's way, like I remember in math class, like everybody's way was identical. And my teacher would say, how did you get to this answer? And I would say, I don't know. That's how I would, because my logic, my pattern of logic of arriving at that was very different mm -hmm. than what they were teaching or they, they, everybody was following. I felt different more than dumb. And that really helped me because, oh, oh boy, oh boy, did it help me. I didn't know I would have to leave my country. I wouldn't know I would live on four continents. I wouldn't know that I would, you know, change my residence 30 something times in my life so far. And that being different, but not feeling dumb was really different for me. And it made the experience um, much better and more positive for me. I was more in my little head thinking I'm different 
and mm-hmm. I was okay with being different. And I think that's where my relationship with, um, again, whatever you want to call it, God, mm-hmm. universe, um, I'm not fussy about the name, uh, it, it really developed. As a child, I would actually speak to and connect to that being that was beyond me because I feel I needed help. And the help wasn't coming from, from people around me. And people would just say, just focus. It's like, it wasn't focus that was my problem. I was focusing. It was the fact that even with focus, I wouldn't understand things the way they were presenting to me. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, I think I, I saw more, myself more as different than dumb and stupid, yeah. which is very, very helpful. I don't know why and how, but I think I, I figured out that, that I, I was listening to my friends and I was thinking, I don't think that way. I don't, I do, I do not have that experience. Mm-hmm. And it was very alone. I was lonely. Nobody would know about by no wonder I started talking to God, but, but it was, it was also feeling that, okay, I can do it, but I can do it in a different way. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the whole idea of working with anybody that is different in any ways, be it physical, be it sexual orientation, be it in uh, expression, uh, you know, we're just are different. And that's beautiful. Look at nature. If we were the same, we would be just so as you called it boring. Mm. Yeah, totally. That was my experience. And I think you also had the opportunity to choose and you chose instead of choosing uh, being different in a weird kind of like marginal way right you had the opportunity to choose being um different in a unique way yes very different being kind of like unique or in this kind of like weirdness marginal right that some people they might feel different and it's kind of like not different in that unique sense yes they kind of like turn it around which i love it I love I love your point. You're you're right on on that because in going back to my survival mode theory, in survival we want to be like everybody else because we're afraid of our uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And when we step out of that mode of survival, we actually celebrate our uniqueness. I look at you and I say, "That's great. I love the way you do this, and I love the way I do this." And more importantly, if there is something that I love about the way you do it, that inspires me, that doesn't frighten me. Exactly. You see, it's just like about where are you standing? And I have to say, all children are born in thriving mode. We condition them. We tell them, don't do that. Don't sound like this. Don't ruin my reputation. Don't sound, you know, that's where they start grasping into the fear of survival mode that I've got to be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the world, I mean, go to any airport, it looks like you could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. There is no uniqueness. There is no my style. There's no my way. There's no my colors. It's all homogeneous, which is, to me, death of creation. Of course. And I don't dare to be me. Mm-hmm. And how did you discover your gifts and your talents? I think they, well, if you can call them talents and gifts, gifts through a talents, I don't know. They discovered me. They mm-hmm. really discovered me. They come to you when you are open. It's amazing. You know, I started painting. I mean, the painting behind me is one of my work. I started painting because I loved just working with colors, Mm -hmm. because I just loved colors. Mm -hmm. And 
never been to school, never been trained. Sorry, with all due respect to trained artists, I don't want to minimize that. But one day I started painting and it goes home for me. It really adds to my creation. And from painting, this is very interesting. Once you open that door and don't let your logical frightened mind tell you, but you don't know anything. What do you know about painting? You can't paint. You don't know anything about painting. You're not talented. You're not like your cousin and your neighbor and your you know, the, the, the friend that is very talented. You're just not talented. When you're open to it, and then from painting, you go to poetry. From poetry, you suddenly are writing poetry. And from poetry, you go to sculptor. From sculptor, you start playing music. And you realize that there is no one way of being. It's mm-hmm. not like I am not good at it. The question is, have you explored it? Mm-hmm. I may not you know, enjoy as much painting as I do poetry, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I'm not good at it. I don't understand that. I really do not understand what that means. I may say I don't enjoy it. I don't prefer it. I understand that. But I'm not good at it. It's like what people are all good at everything when they're born. No. No. They uncover Mm -hmm. those talents. I'm sure Monet didn't know that, you know, he was talented when he was three. But, but somehow he allowed himself or the conditions allowed himself to put his hand in and discover and remember that's what the genius is actually. And we have a lot of geniuses. If you notice, go on YouTube and see how many kids can sing opera and how many kids can play music like Chopin. And it is the remembering when we are not frightened we remember our memories of being good at that in another time, in another place. Mm-hmm. There's really no time. Another experience. Totally. And it's more on focusing the moment of what you enjoy doing that practice than yes. kind of like putting a grade on it, if you're good or bad, right? Like, for example, when I paint or what you were saying about when you're painting, right? It's more about kind of like the flow of the moment. How are you seeing the colors and the texture and how do you move your brush and how your emotions are being expressed on your canvas, right? And it's more about getting immersed in that process and enjoying that process. But when the inner critic or the judgmental part comes in, ah, then eventually it's one, no? And it starts to shatter down in the sense of, we tend to put kind of like a grade and it's, imagine, it's coming from ourselves, but we're the ones grading it as if we were experts not like oh my god that's, that's terrible no you just did a terrible painting <laughs> and you're like oh, you know <laughs> you know you know exactly the same thing as what you're starting to express and to enjoy and to do it being immersed in that painting so it's funny how we can play kind of like different caps around our own work yes that's so true and there are really three different frightened mode of characters that show up in in a very general sense one is the judge and and over judger and negative judger i'm not talking about you know the one that discerns and makes decisions but the one that is like always has a comment like you're not good enough you're not tall enough you're not beautiful enough, you're not young enough you're not talented enough you're never enough that's one of the voices uh, and and the other voice is the voice of oh poor me my victim, my victim voice is like, you know, I, I just, uh, I've just ne- never been good. I'm just not one of the lucky ones. You know, I'm not one like, you know, somebody else. And, and it's like a poor me. And all of these are, are like the voices of frightened fear land, mm. 
voices. Another one is like, I have to save everybody. I've got to do more in order to uh, convince people how good I am. Yeah. Let me come and do your life. Let me just cook for you. Let me just take care of your kids. Let me do something to convince you how good I am. I'm, I become the savior and really rejecter of myself and savior of others. Yeah. So these are the main voices that, that show that we are actually um, stuck in, in the survival mode. But when we step out of that, and it's just the moment of decision, the moment we do that, then we free the talented, the poet, the writer, uh, at the very least, the happy me. At the very least, I may not be into any of those things, and I'm not saying everybody should be, but I'm saying that when you free yourself from that fear land, survivor mode, um, and constant comments, and you go to the bit of a pause, bit of a silence, mm -hmm. bit of compassion, then you see there's a whole world that I've never touched before, and why not? Totally. And something that I think it's um, important mentioning, just seconding what, what what you just said, is that sometimes we tend to put our value in ourselves with an activity instead of something of being. And something that I've seen that has been happening a lot in these unusual times is putting our self-worth or our value with productivity. Yes. So if there's a time that we're not productive or there's a time when, I don't know, we didn't have a win or if there's a time where, I don't know, we didn't do what we expected to do, eventually a lot of pain comes. Why are we putting our identity with an action? Because our identity is, it is. No actions, no, no judgment, it just is. But we tend to put that our identity is good or bad depending on different actions around us. That's exactly true. And, and that's exactly why we do it. Because you said the pain comes. And I to avoid pain, I want to fill up all the spaces between my activities. Because by doing, I'm avoiding being. Mm -hmm. And the, the ideal for a balanced life is a do, be, do, be, mm -hmm. doing, being, doing, being. And, and allowing that pause to give us the opportunity to access the unborn thoughts and ideas and projects and connections. So it is in that pause, in, in not doing, mm -hmm. that not doing is the mother of all doing. Yeah. But when we don't give ourselves that, that pleasure of that pause, then we will be doing for no particular reason. Mm -hmm. We're just busying ourselves mm -hmm. instead of the really taking advantage and enjoying ourselves in, in these moments of doing. Totally. And analogy, an analogy that I love is that life is more or less like music, right? We need, as much as we need the notes, we need the pauses, right? Yes, yes. If, if music would all the time be notes, de, 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 you know, yes. <laughs> it would be terrible to hear all the time, you know what I mean? Like, shut, you know, it wouldn't be that harmonious melody, right? Yes. When we add the pauses, with the right notes, then eventually we're able to create something so beautiful, so mesmerizing that eventually connects with our truest essence. When we're, you know, listening to, to a piece of music or something that we love, or we are in a, in a concert with it, with a favorite music, it goes really deep. And it's that balance between notes and pauses. And it seems that even in our everyday life, everything is about notes and we tend to feel bad when we take pauses. 
It's yes. completely what a great analogy. I love that story. That's true. Music without, and I love classical music, music without pauses is just a boring and very intrusive series of sounds. That's so true. It would be annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it would be, yes. And probably not, we can't even call it music, pleasant music. So, yeah. And on that note, I need to pause. Yes, I just wanted to close with a few questions for you there, just to answer in one or a few words, just like something fast that comes right to your mind, okay? okay. What is art for you? Art for me is creation, that which has not been before. Mm. Your favorite author? Uh, Jalil Gibran. An advice that changed your life. Say it again. An advice that changed your life. You have a choice. The best quality in humans. Kindness. A book that you recommend. Um, hmm. Actually, the book, oh, I got shivers. Uh, all books of Thich Nhat Hanh, they're so simple and so deep. Mm -hmm. I second that. What feeds your soul? Connection and, and meditation. The most pressing issue for humanity. Oh, wow. Getting out of survival mode. Mm -hmm. If humans can agree on this, you will be very happy. We are far more powerful and intelligent than what we think we are. And we need to go beyond our limitations. Mm -hmm. And um, what would you like to scream to the whole world? Love is the answer. And the last one, what is it that you have lived that no one could miss experiencing it? What experience? I do crazy things, bungee jumping and parasailing. And I just love the fact that I can let go of fear of being in control mm. that's what you're doing I do it in the safe place but that's I, those are my experiences mm. and going to a hot balloon experience at 4 a.m in the middle of turkey was something that i would never ever forget mm. in Cappadocia. In Cappadocia. Yes. Oh, nice. Wonderful. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Mitra. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your magic, your experience, your love, your wisdom. Thank you for sharing it with us in the Luan community. And it was a pleasure to have you here again in Luan. Thank you for creating the opportunity for people to come and share that. And I really, really commend what you're doing. May your success grow and grow. Mm, likewise. Thank you so much, Mitra, from the bottom of our heart. Thank you. Bye-bye. Want to keep the conversation going? Luan, the world's first emotional museum, designed a global online experience to inspire and explore. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Telegram, and visit our site at luanmuseum.com to engage creatively.